Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hey everyone, what's up? This is Todd. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for joining us this week. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with author, homesteader, falconer, hunter, Jenna Wogenrich in Washington County, New York on her farm, Cold Antler Farm. And uh, I'm excited to bring that conversation to you this week. Uh, Jenna has been homesteading for years. She's written numerous books, uh, including the book Cold Antler Farm, um, about her homesteading life. And uh, she's just a fascinating person. So we're, we're here on the podcast this week talking about her farming and about homesteading and sharing some advice on that and talking about falconry and training birds and her experience with that. It's a fascinating conversation, and I'm so thankful that uh, she invited me down to visit her farm recently. Uh, we social distanced and, and I got the tour, and then we sat down and had this conversation, and I'm proud to bring it to you. So uh, thanks again for listening. You can check out Jenna Wogenrich um, on Instagram at, at uh, Cold Antler Jenna, on Twitter at Cold Antler Farm, and uh, check out her website, which is www.barnhart.com, barnhart.com, B-A-R-N-H-E-A-R-T.com. And uh, you'll check out her cool blog um, there. So without further ado, I uh, appreciate you listening this week and uh, hope you're having a good summer. Keep in touch. Let us know how you're doing. And thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Uh, this is Todd. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. We are in Washington County today with Jenna Wogenrich, and I'm going to say that I first came across Jenna a couple of years ago. She wrote an article on falconry in the Backcountry Journal for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and then I started reading her book recently called Cold Antler Farm, and it only took me about 10 pages to get into that to know that I wanted to meet Jenna and have a convo with oh, So, I mean, I started reading that book. It's a great book. And so it's a pleasure to be able to have this conversation with you. Uh, how are you today? I'm I'm doing well. Thanks for coming down to talk and thanks for visiting the farm. It's been a busy season already and it's been a big bit of a challenge with the weather. It's gone from super moist and chilly for so long to just bam heat and then drought. And so I'm very grateful I mostly raise meat because I would not want to be dealing with all these weather extremes if, with vegetables. Man, I'll tell you what, pigs during a hailstorm, they just go in the barn. Yeah. But apples just, you can lose a whole harvest. So it's it's yeah. amazing what growers are putting up with every year out there. Yeah, there's a lot of natural risk. A- aside from all the hardships of trying to run a, a business, a sustainable business off the land, there's so many things that are out of your control. Yeah. Uh, weather and drought and extremes. You gave me a tour before we started podcasting. This is an amazing place. Oh, thank You've you. You've got so many cool things going on with your animals. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So tell us a little bit for the listeners. You know, you wrote Cold Antler Farm. You've written some other books as well. Tell us a little bit about the farm and how you got here. And, sure. And just a little bit of background on that. Um, well, I started in Idaho, actually. I was working out west. Um I had previously moved from uh, Tennessee in the Knoxville area, the Smoky Mountain region, where I fell in love with homesteading in my heart there. 
walking around the Smokies, spending time hiking, learning about like the people of Cades Cove and all these independent mountain communities. And I, I never felt so terrified and so inspired because at that point in life, I, I've written, I think, if it wasn't for a grocery store and my car, I would be dead in like five days like because <laughs> I had no like, n- not, I'm not talking about, talking about like primitive survival skills. I mean, like just basic, like what I had in my home, like the abilities and skills I had. And I remember looking at these places where people were showing the park rangers were explaining how they use like the like the the husks of the onions they grew by hand in the dirt to dye the cloth they spun by hand i'm like i am a useless person (laughs) and i was i was but i was like it's like a superpower like learning to do these things like the fact that people sew their own jeans blew my mind like in my mind pants had to come out of a factory line nobody can just make pants like that's like making electricity by rubbing your hands together that's crazy and of course come a long way that was my early 20s and um i got a job on the west coast believe it or not i was so far in northern idaho that it's technically closer to i think i was closer to seattle than i was to boise really (laughs) yeah Yeah, up in the panhandle up 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 yeah it was close to it was very close to bc okay and um which is beautiful up there yeah i fell in love i fell in love in practice with homesteading there because I went from living in a city of Knoxville and having a little backyard to renting a retired cattle ranch. And I just had this, no, don't, that, that sounds much more exciting than it is. I was renting the ranch house and the barnyard yard area. And the, of course, all the other pasture behind me was still being used for haying and stuff and for others, people's grazing. But I was allowed to like use an old cow yard that had just recently turned over to sod so underneath this very easy to hoe up layer was the most black beautiful soil in the world because it had just been organic cow shit for like 50 years and so i had the most amazing first gardening season in the world um and i'm like this is so easy why isn't everybody doing this and then um you know i kept my first hive of bees and i was doing this all with a full-time job um, working for a, uh, a women's clothing retailer out in the Midwest, and the, not Midwest, in the uh, Pacific Northwest. And so I was like living this weird world of like getting up and working in a cubicle job and then coming home. And until the sun went down, it was taking care of rabbits, which I was learning to raise for fiber. They were fiber rabbits that I couldn't even imagine having animals with hooves at that point. That seemed like something for a different lifetime. But I learned like all these small ways I could be a little more self-sufficient, like learning to can vegetables from mm-hmm. the garden and learning how to make my first strawberry jam and to use a drop spindle to make wool. And I started to get some of those good feelings back that I were so scary to me in Tennessee. And by the time I moved back to the East Coast, which is where I'm from, I'm from Pennsylvania, I moved back to the Vermont, New York border area, which we just call Ver York here. I knew the life I wanted to have and I went from renting places in Vermont to buying this small piece of land 10 years ago. And I uh, quit my full-time design gigs about eight years ago. So it's been full-time farming and writing and hustling and scrapping and teaching everything from fiddle lessons to archery classes to making... Right now, my main income comes from freelance design and writing, goat milk soap, and pork and lamb. So it's a whole... (laughs) I I gave up one job to take on another 16, but I get to live and work in this place that has become my recreation, my passion, my like safe place from the world and my exciting place too. So um, you're going to have to demand shorter answers 
if you want them, because I will talk a lot about this place. So that's what we're here for. Okay. And for for listeners outside the area, Washington County is an amazingly verdant and just abundant uh, food basket for northeastern New York, right? There's farms. We're tucked between the Taconic uh, Range and the Green Mountains in Vermont and the Hudson Valley and the Adirondacks. And we're kind of like this just beautiful farmland. And uh, your place is, is so productive. The tour that we did, the utilization that you've got and how you manage it is so it's it's great. Yeah. Um, Thank the, you. you know, going through your book, like the Cold Antler Farm book, like there's two things that um, that I really like picked me up. It was uh, page 36. You had written uh, at the end of one of your chapters. You said this may be the most terrifying trap in the world to me to live someone else's idea of a good life. I'm too short on time as we all are to live up to someone else's permission. Like, I love that so much. Oh, like, that spoke to me in such a way that it speaks a lot to your, you know, to your values and to your situation of why you're doing what you're doing. And uh, I think, I think it's great. The other thing, there was a quote, this is in the chapter before the thought. It said, to become a farmer is to accept the worst offerings of chance and laugh at them. Understand that there's no difference between the pleasure or the pain because feeling either is proof you're still waltzing among the living. You pray to the fireflies and black flies alike. You learn to love both the smell of baby lambs and the blood buckets on hog slaughtering day. They're the exact same thing in the end, life. All of this proof positive that life surrounds us and leaves us. And we're just another bit of blood and meat blessed with pleasure. I just, I love your prose. Oh, thank um, you. I mean, like I could read that all day. Uh, were you writing before you came here? You just talked about your path in terms of being out in Idaho mm -hmm. and, in, and in the Appalachian region and everything. And so at what point was it, hey, I'm going to start writing some books? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think I've been writing my whole life. Um, I was a little kid who stayed inside in recess and wrote stories and was a real nerdy little kid. And um, I always kept journals as a kid. And then as I got older, and um, I was a teenager right when the internet was becoming normalized in people's homes. So there was all these online like live journals and Zangas and like online ways to just write. And it was a way for your friends to be forced to read what you had to say, like the beginning of like AOL and all that. And so <laughs> we would all write about our days. And it was just a way for us to keep in touch, you know. And so I just never stopped writing. And then when blogs became a thing, I was like, well, I'm just going to keep doing this. And originally, I started writing a daily blog to have people on the East Coast that I were friends and family with to, to be in touch with me and see what I'm doing out in Idaho or Tennessee. So I was just keeping just just keeping a log basically of like where I was in the national parks or what I was doing with my own crafts or my own little boring life. And then I was you know, starting to spend more and more time doing outdoorsy stuff. And when I started jumping into homesteading, I had a friend tell me, you should write about this. Like, you're already writing about it. Why don't you do a book? And at that point, someone telling me to do a book is like someone saying, would you like to join the cast of Hamilton? You you have the same body parts as them and you can talk. So you must be able to memorize words and sing. And you're like, that's stupid. Stop. Stop talking to me. But but what turns out with writing books, if if you keep doing it, there's a great author, um, Michael Perry, who says getting started in writing is a lot like shoveling um, shit in a farm, like make enough make a big enough pile and someone's bound to notice. <laughs> so I just wrote every day, everywhere. And when I and I got very, honestly, the only reason I was able to sell a book so young, I was 25, was I wanted to write about 
getting into homesteading with zero experience and all the mistakes I was going to make along the way. So I was no way qualified to write a how-to book, but I was qualified to share a memoir of messing up along the way. And so um, like a, in my- a lot of mentorship with that. You know? <laughs> I know. It is. It's, it's great. <laughs> yeah. But in yeah. My, my, my first book is called Made from Scratch, and it was just about living in Idaho and learning how to raise bees and how like just, you know, and, and like I think I lost a hive and I had a dog, a husky, bark at a rabbit in a rabbit hutch, and it's terrified the rabbit so much that, you know, the rabbit hurt its back and died, you know, because it got its foot stuck in a cage or something. And then I learned about dog sledding with just two huskies in that community. And like, um, but I was learning so much at once. I was, I was getting high off of just getting these little bits of self-control back in my life that I think we don't have as modern people. And I think a lot of your audience can relate to that if you're spending a lot of time outside, especially engaging in your food as a hunter or a farmer. Um, so it was all pretty life-changing. But but yeah, to, to answer your original question, I've been writing a long time. The book you were reading from was my fifth published book. And they're all about mostly food, farming, and livestock. Yeah, it's yeah. it's great stuff. Um, it's it's really good, and I you know I I think there's there's a huge audience for like what you're writing about your your when you were blogging about hey I'm I'm learning as we go here, and these mm-hmm. are some of the things that I'm learning. Um, there's I think that there's huge value in that, like if you know from homesteading, like what you're doing, but also like on the hunting side of things too. I find that for people that are interested and curious about hunting for food and to have yeah. a relationship with the land. Um, they can relate to that. So they, I think it's easier to relate to somebody that's like, oh, that's kind of like me. I'm I'm still dealing with these questions, too, and these um, these challenges. And, I'm, you know, so I think if you're looking, there, there's people that know a lot about hunting out there um, or homesteading or farming. But, like, to be able to, I think it's relatable. It's, yeah. You know. And, I think everyone's story is super relatable because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you grow up in a generation of, you know, 10 10 lineage back of people that have been hunting elk in the same range it's still your first hunt mm-hmm. you know like if it's your first hunt like it doesn't matter like you're you, there everyone's gonna you we have such privilege of we have a history of traditions of hunting or fishing in our family we can learn from but if you're brand new to it too how exciting for you yeah because it's like it's like learning a new language it's like taking on a new culture and i mean i i, I had a dad that hunted deer and fished but it was all very sporadic and recreational um his father was a big hunter and um like it's fun how things that are not a big deal to my to like my mom or my siblings like there's my father's like one of his first deer his rack is here on my wall here because it was given to me as the hunter in the family who's still i don't think he ever thought his middle kid a daughter would be the one out there with hawks and bows and guns and you know like the other kids are you know they're living great lives but you know it's it's a tradition that I, I feel attached to, but I, yeah, but no one in my family worked with birds. So I had to learn how to do that entirely from as, a, as an adult in her thirties. So man, if I can do this stuff, you get your audiences set. They've already listened to an episode about hunting before. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it, so, I've been. Yeah. It's great stuff. Um, I love that. And so we're going to talk about the birding here in a bit, but I want to go back to your farm here because you gave me the tour. And so you're raising me, you're, you're doing a lot of different things. Um, but you've also got some cool stuff going on. You were telling me about logging. You've got a couple horses and you've got a, a pack goat for, for hikes. Talk a little bit about some of that stuff. Sure. Um, I don't want to, so the farm I live on is halfway up the smallest mountain in the Adirondack fire tower system. So we're on a, um, 
a very, very small, I mean, I think it's like to 2,600 feet. This is a small hill, but it's steep enough in a, in that um, if I were to be on a tractor, I would have it on top of me five minutes after having it delivered. Like, it's just, it's all, it's all hillside. It's here. all hillside. Yep. Yeah. So um, the only flat place is the house. And as you walk to the house, you realize how unflat it is. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's an old home. Um, so, so because of both the terrain of the farm, I was able to afford and make home out of um, and just the features and things on it. Uh, I don't have horses that are out there plowing fields and cultivating, but I have a horse that's trained to drive a rig so I can use my horse as a car if I need to and get it out in the road and have taken it to like go to the farm stand to get provisions and come back. And they're great saddle horses, both of them. Um, but the driving horse is a British breed called a fell pony. He's actually from England. He was born um, and lived on the moors for a couple of years before somebody, I don't know who, afforded to have him imported and trained here in America. And I got him when he was 16 years old. But he came to me knowing how to drive and how to do all the work and harness. And that was incredibly lucky as a new homesteader working with horses to have a horse that knew more than I did. And um, yeah, and so we have like a... And did you self-educate with that? Then? I was very lucky like, to find a mentor. So okay, I had yeah. a, a friend who came to one of my book events, actually, for a book I call a book I wrote called Barnhart, which was about falling in love with homesteading and farming. Someone came to my book signing event and was like, I train Percherons, which are these very large draft horses that um, are French breed that originally actually They're were bred like for the, meat. Like gray ones, right? The big like, gray and black yeah, ones you yeah, see with, yeah. the, with the feathered hooves. And like they're very, there could be 18 hands tall, which if you don't know horses, a hand is four or five inches. So 18 times five, it's a tall horse. That's a shoulder height, by the way. So these horses, when they stand and look down at you, their heads are sometimes 10 feet in the air. So these are big horses. Dinosaurs. Yeah. 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 And, and, um, I learned to drive with these big horses and I knew me being 5'2 and built exactly like a Tolkien dwarf that I needed a horse that was strong and stout and stout, but not super tall. So I fell in love with these um, Highland horses, these Highland breeds of these really, they look like exactly what a, a hobbit would take to Mordor. Like that's what they look like. They're, they have like the long mane and like the big furry and they're, they're built like little brick shit houses. Um, and they're just fantastic but i learned to drive and and with that horn that there's um logs here that heat this home that not all of my wood by the way i have to i barter for wood too because i need to get through three cords to keep warm through the winter but um we do take like we had in these storms we had the last couple of weeks we've had some ash trees fall down they've been chainsawed up and cleared and set aside and those logs will be brought to the forefront out of the woods by horses they'll be dragging them in harness Pretty cool because stuff. I'm I I'm a tough broad, but I cannot pull an 800 pound log. <laughs> so so got well, 800 is an exaggeration, yeah. but, but, uh, yeah. but a two or 300 pound log is a lot easier. It's not, you yeah. would think my horse was pulling a sock. Yeah. the way they pull it through the woods. So and then as opposed to having 10 friends with a free afternoon to carry lumber. So you can do a lot on a small bit of land with a horse if you have some help. Very cool stuff. So that's what the horses do. Yeah. Yeah. And talk about your goat. Oh, okay. So I've fell in love with, um, I feel like it's a, such a combination of farm, homestead and hiking and backpacking and backcountry hunting is the pack goat, which is mostly alpine or mountain goat dairy breeds. Like um, I have a Nubian goat, um, but alpine goats are very popular too. And these are goats that are trained from a young age to follow people. This goat was gifted to me. We went on hikes 
through the woods where it just learned to follow us for like miles at a time as like a little three-month-old goat plopping around with us. And it was bottle-fed and raised here in the home like a dog or a person. And uh, and now, um, as he gets older, he's a couple months old, we have a dog pack that is very light that attaches to him because his, you know, his spine is still growing. He can't carry heavy stuff, but he's learning to walk and follow humans that have their own backpacks. But the great thing about having a pack goat is after a while, they naturally just know when they're in their gear and they've got their stuff on, when they're in like their outfitted that it's time to work and it's time to go and uh, a fully a full-size um, weather goat so a castrated male goat is what you use for this um, they they can carry like th- the equivalent of what I would carry on a backpacking trip for a week they have no trouble carrying along and when you're new to backpacking or you have, or you have friends that are like disabled or are not able to carry their own gear who like animals it's a way to get people into the woods it's a way to have part of the homestead come with me and you'll bring stuff camping usually wouldn't bring <laughs> so <Yeah>. like <laughs> you know it's so nice to have like a good cast iron skillet for breakfast and a yeah. campfire instead Absolutely. of like using a tiny so it's it's a little more um if you got any of like the rendezvous or like the primitive survival skill crowd i think they would I don't. I don't think there's a lot of people that would not enjoy seeing a goat in the backcountry. You know, yeah, there's definitely a gear. yeah. There's a coolness factor to that too, it's, right? And they're so yeah. sweet. They're yeah. such sweet animals. Yeah. It's so we're we're in the training process, but um, yeah. The goat. The goal for this year is just to get the goat the goat out once or twice a week and get it used to hiking in the mountains and following along. And right now, it's trying to get a lawnmower to stop mowing. <laughs> so he's like. <laughs> And he's like, but every there's something to eat everywhere. So he makes it like four feet, eats, gets a leaf. We keep going, but yeah. um, it's been a fun process. Yeah, it, it's so cool that, and it's a beautiful goat too. And uh, so I've been exposed. I've seen like out west um, some friends that have had like pack llamas, uh-huh. you know, for further backcountry trips. But um, this is the first goat I've seen. So talk a little bit about your your birding. You you said that you started that as an adult. So talk a little bit about what you do and the birds. And then like the community that you were telling me earlier about um, around this area. Sure. So um, I'm a licensed falconer. Um, It's a federally licensed program. It's the most regulated sport in America. I think just the process to get your apprenticeship is such a pain that a lot of people don't even want to deal with going through it. And um, if you're listening and not sure what falconry really is, um, it's not keeping a pet hawk. It's not performing at... um, conventions or renaissance fairs falconry is taking a bird of prey a wild or captive bred animal here as in america uh, when you start you need to it is required that you start with a captive i'm sorry with a, a wild caught bird so you have to learn the entire process of capturing training and working with a wild passage bird passage means uh, a young adult uh, kestrel or red tail that's migrating. It's on its passage south. So the reason we're allowed to trap and train these birds is because uh, a red tail or a kestrel, they have about a 90% um, chance of death before they reach sexual maturity. Really? That high? Wow. Super high, which is why so much you, and you still see kestrels and red tails all over the place are very common birds of prey here in New York. And so um, the, our state is fine with apprentices learning with those first two birds because just a falconer taking on a bird ups its chances of survival to sexual maturity mm-hmm. by like 300%. 
of course, things can go wrong with anyone and anything you do with animals or living things. But a falcon, a falconer taking on a young bird is pretty much like a golden ticket for that bird. They're going to be uh, living in a protected environment. Uh, all of birds that we have have to live in a all, before you become an apprentice falconer, a game warden from the state has to come and inspect your equipment, the food you have for the bird, um, your housing unit you've made for the bird. So they have to, a game warden has to inspect and make sure that it's called a muse, kind of like the sound a cat makes, mew, M-E-W-S, and make sure that everything is up to this code where they see that you're serious and prepared. And so after you've invested all this money and time preparing to become a falconer, you must also take on a mentor and you must have a, a, a general falconer or master falconer take you on, sign up with you, become your like legal sponsor. It's like AA for Hawks. Um, <laughs> um, and you have to uh, basically have someone sign on to, to shepherd you through the process. And um, an apprenticeship has to last a minimum of two years. Like, so you'll be working with your bird for two years or two different birds over two seasons. And um, it's used for hunting. I have made that clear. Falconry is hunting with a bird of prey. So the only difference in seasons is that instead of using a shotgun or a rifle to take game, you're using talons. And that hunting season for squirrels and rabbits or pheasants or ducks, whatever you're out there hunting with your bird of prey, is the same as people who are out there using firearms. So for me, squirrel season starts September 1st, rabbit and like uh, like some grouse and like pheasants and ground birds, those seasons start in October. You have to follow the same duck and goose laws. Um, some people with different birds of prey are after um, ducks, like they're out duck hunting with their hawks, and uh, you know, with like goshawks, you know what I mean? Using a red tail, my number one um, hunting prey is is rabbits. So it's um, I never yeah I'm I, and I'm much more successful hunting with hawks than I have been hunting um, by myself without a dog. So I'm 100% a, a fan of using a very smart, better hunter, the hawk, than I'll ever be um, out there in the wild. That's fascinating. It is. Yeah. It is. So there's a process to it. I mean, it's a long process. Oh, it's a long process. Yeah. Yeah, and and so. And you said before that you've had like eight birds maybe over the – is that right? Six or to eight. I have to, I to, to sit down and go through it. But yeah, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've had several birds that I've had for two or three years each. I only keep one bird at a time. So my first bird I had for two seasons, and then I had a bird for a year, then I had a bird for uh, three years, then I had a bird for one season. And then it, it, the last bird I've had was released back into the wild in April – or late March, and that bird came to me from a falconer who was who took on falconry at age sixteen, and was going to college at eighteen, and her bird that she she had a red tail hawk that was not ready to be released back to the wild. She was going to preparing and going to school during the summer. Obviously, hunting season starts in the fall. She was not going to have time to train and get the bird into condition for hunting. So um, I took on the bird to prepare basically to release back in the wild, get it in shape, get it hunting mm -hmm. for itself again. Because when you have a wild caught bird that's getting used to living with and hunting beside humans, and when it's not the hunting season, so this bird is being fed for in a in a in a in a, um still getting exercise, it's still being handled, but it's mostly being fed by not hunting because we legally can't release our birds to hunt when it's not hunting season. They kind of just go through the same atrophy you or I would go through if we sat on a couch all summer and didn't go for a hike or a run. Like they need to get back into shape. 
So the bird, it was just better to have the bird go to another falconer, get back into shape, get ready to hunt again, get ready to fly every day, and then be released back to the wild. And I took on that bird as a project thinking, well, as a falconer, I'll learn a lot training and working with someone who already had the bird, like adapting it to my hunting and training style. And I thought it would be just a project and I was just wanted to get it healthy enough to release. I had the best hunting season with that bird. I think <laughs> we had awesome. 13 things in the bag before um, the season ended, which for a falconer living, they call it dirt hawking out here in the Northeast, because unlike in the West where it's just open sage country and you know, your your golden eagle or your hawk can see a or jackrabbit from two miles away and there's not many places to hide. Here, you could be under a thorn bush in 13 feet and in a hole in, you know, before the bird, the bird even has a chance to see it. So taking game out here in thick under, in thick snow and thick brush is... It's a whole different thing, right? It's a whole different thing than letting your beagles flush out rabbits. You know what I mean? Like you have to have an animal with you that's going to get it before it takes cover. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very exciting when it happens. It's like oh, it's got to be. It's such a thrill. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. got to be. So like when you say, you, you know, when you're going through the training when it's not hunting season and getting mm-hmm. that bird into shape, like are you just is it flying? Is it like are yes. you training? What are the kinds of training things that you do, Jenna? Well, um, hawks are not like dogs or horses where they're kind of learning behaviors. It's all based on food. And realizing that you're not going, that you, this giant primate, is not going to hurt it, but is actually going to help it hunt. And these birds are just using us to get food better. Mm -hmm. And the way it starts out with a bird, whether it's wild caught or you're training a bird that hasn't been worked in a while, is getting it acclimated to spending time with people and the environments and things we'll be hunting around. So I don't hunt with dogs um, because I have border collies and they would be... As as hunting dogs, they're great sheep herders. And <laughs> they're beautiful dogs. They're laying here right now. Uh, they're beautiful. Yep. They're being quiet for the moment. They're so. being quiet for the moment. Yeah, we, we had a little conversation before we started podcasting, by the way. The weather is humid and hot, mm-hmm. and there's some crazy storms coming through this afternoon. And so we were... We were rolling the dice that we were going to get through this without a major thunder boomer here coming through. But so far, so good. So far, so good. Yeah. I, I was not so worried about – once I found, heard about like your headset rig, I was less worried about <laughs> our disturbance as a 60-pound adult male border collie leaping into my lap because of fear of thunder. He's he's a big baby. He's laying on the floor He's the right same now. way with guns. But you shoot a shotgun near him, he's under a couch. So yep. not that there's guns in falconry. But, yep. but yeah, you get the bird used to people and sound. So – when I have a new bird, we, we go, we sit down. I, I sit down with the with the gauntlet on my arm, the leather falconry glove. I have the bird on a leash with um, the a bird is leashed by having little anklets around its legs with a grommet so they can't slip off. And little leather leashes are put through the holes in each anklet, and you're holding them by the feet because with a hawk, you never have to worry about your eyes getting pecked out. Usually, you don't. But those feet are their weapons. That's their talons. That's what they use. So you're holding the bird's feet are on a leash so it can't strike at you. But young birds or scared birds have to figure out that this giant person spending time with it is not going to hurt them. So when I get a new bird, this may sound super dorky to your audience, but I play all three extended versions of the Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> and we start at like 6 p.m. after dinner. And I just sit there on a, an easy chair with my arm on the easy chair armchair. And that bird has to realize, usually about midway through the first film, it stops 
can it stops breathing hard stops panting and just sits there quietly and usually by halfway through the second film the bird is asleep with its head tucked behind it it's like oh this thing isn't going to kill me i guess i'll go to sleep and then um you start learning to feed it by hand it, it learns to trust that you're a source of food so now you're not only not dangerous you're part of how it's getting food so it starts learning to eat and you build up so slow from there, like getting a bird to just jump to your fist from a perch to get food instead of just taking it out of off the glove, you know. And then you, you work to the point where it learns that food comes from like a, a lure. So we'll take like a bit of rabbit skin or we'll take a bit of a, like a pheasant's wing on a lure and we'll attach to this little. And by lure, I literally, I literally mean just that, a, a, a ball of fur or a wing of a bird. And we attach food to that and it'll be on a string and we, the bird learns to fly to a lure. Like it's just learning to eat. It's just learning to trust you as a source of food. And the reason we can get these birds to the point where they're flying to us and getting exercise and getting in shape to be hunting is you can attach to their jesses in an area free of trees or anything the bird can get hung up on, like a big field. You, when you can walk 50 to 100 yards away from your bird, call it on a long line and have it fly to you on a very light string and still come as come when called, you're ready to take any leashes off that bird and just let it fly free. And you should have a bird that when you call it comes back to you because it, you are a source of food. So you get that lure out, you whistle, it learns, oh, my food, my food primate is calling me. <laughs> but um, out in the field when you're hunting, so that's how you get a bird trained up and getting it used to working beside you. But when you're hunting, it's a very different thing. You basically... Put the, you release a bird where you want to go hunting with it. So if I'm rabbit hunting, it's going to be a field with hedgerows or an area where usually the best places are where agriculture meets forests. You know, we Some all edge you know. and edgeland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, I'm sure your your folks know exactly what I'm talking about. They're picturing that bare graded roses and thorns and like all those places <laughs> rabbits are found. And um, basically, what happens is the bird goes up, perches in a tree, so it's 50 feet above you. And this, us humans with our walking sticks and our dogs or just our bodies, we don't know that 20 yards, 30 yards ahead of us, some rabbit already sees us, hears us, and has taken off. But th from the bird's vantage point, we're the hunting dogs. Us humans are the things flushing game as we walk through the woods. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So you well, that's, yeah. The, that's the role you take as a falconer. You're a hunting dog. The, and your gun is up in a tree somewhere. And as you walk through the forest, and it's fine to talk or... Usually we have um, big walking sticks we use to be brushed the same way people used to do that with like flushing game when there would be hunting parties where there were people that were beaters and there were people that were out there hunting. You're the beater for your bird. And when you scare a rabbit, you make out a call. Usually the, the call for the, the hawk is just like Santa Claus. You yell ho, 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 ho. And the bird sees or hears either – knows to look around when it hears that. And if you're lucky and you're working as a team, you flush the game. The hawk stoops lands on the game and it is then your job to go to the hawk on top of the heavy game and you have not a lot of time to get a leash on that bird's anklet again and let it dig into that meal it's earned it's well earned and my rule is always the first couple of rabbits of the season belong 100 cents to that bird yeah i bring a little camp stove with me i'll make a cup of tea <laughs> i'll have that bird <laughs> tied to my hunting sling bag and i will sit down i don't care if it takes two hours i'll bring an audiobook i'll take a nap that bird eats to its crop it's so full it can't fly if it wanted to it's so fat uh that's an exaggeration birds with full crops can still fly but it's, <laughs> you, you'll see like it looks like the bird swallowed a softball it's like so happy and then we go home and and after a couple of um 
after a couple of good uh, kills where they learn like, oh, this person, this idiot that follows me through the woods is actually just chasing game for me and I'm going home with a full stomach. Then you have this bond that's going nowhere and I start just taking off the heads when they kill a rabbit. I give it the whole head and it takes not much time at all for that to be nothing left but a little bit of jawbone. Wow. Everything gets devoured. Skull gets cracked into little pieces. The rest of the, the non-head part goes into the game bag and it's um it's a way for you and your bird to put meat on the table, literally. Yeah. Um, depending on the season, I'll get to cook some of it and eat it myself. But for me, falconry is about that teamwork between two species. It's about getting out into wild places. It's about it, seeing the hunt and seeing the woods and nature in a way I never would have if I was just sitting in a tree stand. And nothing against still hunting. I think it's great. I'm a deer hunter. I'm a, I love upland hunting um, with a dog and a shotgun and friends. It's just... There's something really special about falconry, and it's it's the only hunting where I don't care if I go 20 seasons without having a good, like, potted meal or a great story. It's so joyful just to be out there with them. It's so – every time I come back with my hawk on my fist, I'm like, that was a good hunt. That is so yeah. cool. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. And and so these, these rabbits you're hunting, are they cottontail rabbits or are they, like, snowshoe hares or – I've never had a snowshoe here. There's yeah. some here, uh, yeah. more north, more of north here, like of up here. where we are. Yeah, yeah. Warren yeah. County and that, like up yeah. that way. But um, uh, the Adirondacks have more of that. But yeah, mostly cottontails. And uh, I mean, honestly, most of the hunts we do, it just it's we're there to feed the hawk. Yeah. And most red tails don't generally go after things like squirrels and cottontails. It's a big animal for them to take the risk of trying to get. So falconers are kind of training them on these bigger animals. We're setting them for success with these bigger animals. We're taking them to places we know these rabbits are. We're training them to work with us. We're giving them a really clean shot at getting in. And we're kind of getting these birds that are anywhere from two to four pounds. A red-tailed hawk, as big as it may look in the sky, is not a very heavy animal. I mean, your basic chicken is five, six pounds. Mm -hmm. Like, we're talking half that size for a male red-tailed hawk. So... Having a red-tailed hawk learn that it can take a cottontail, which is a fairly mm -hmm. large animal for the size of the red-tail, we're getting these animals that would just be living off of voles and chipmunks and mice to learn to up their game, which is only going to help them when they're released back in the wild to see that they can take a piece of food that they can – some hawks store – like they'll store a leg in a tree to eat later. You know oh, what I mean? really? Yeah, they yeah, will. Yeah, they'll yeah. like cash their food. Yeah, or like yeah. some have. Some species do. Yeah, yeah. I've had. A, I've actually taken a hawk hunting, and it went into a tree and started eating a dead squirrel. Another hawk had stashed. I'm like, oh, well, really? that, we're done, because technically it ate. Because yeah. <laughs> like, it's good. Yeah. Once the hawk starts eating on a hunt, you're done. Like you, you could be hunting with that bird for two and a half hours and have it right by your side, like in a storybook, or you know, it can find a piece of. I've had a deer. I've had a. a after deer hunting season, I had my hawk out and some hunters had put the guts and like legs and stuff in a pile and didn't cover it with any cut. They just left them out, which nope. um, plenty of hunters do, but they didn't bury them. So my hawk just found roadkill, basically, like just found dead <laughs> deer guts. I was like, we're not, it wouldn't leave. I'm like, well, I can't blame you. Right. You just it scored. Just, <laughs> like, 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 like the load of food right yeah. there. For <laughs> so, so it's like you're learning to work with birds and how they think. And, and like, so a hunt for you, you might be suited up to and thinking about recipes for, you know, rabbit filled ravioli and like all these great <laughs> stews and like all the game feast you want to put on for your friends and your rabbits like no i'm gonna eat i'm gonna eat good three or four ounces of this venison someone left out and then we can go home I'm like great yeah so 
interesting. Yeah, it, it is interesting. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's it's just for somebody. At any time I read anything about it, like the article you wrote, or just sitting here listening to you talk about it, it's like such a mystique. It's so cool, and and I like the Lord of the Rings approach. And to, this, uh, by the way, this is all level, ha- this is way. all my personal experience and opinions. <laughs> what I am not speaking for other falconers or what? as any sort of expert. But, it's but just what been... better way to do it than Lord of the Rings, right? You That's know? what I did. I mean, I don't even think there's falconry in that movie series, but it feels right, and the timing is great, great because that right. bird that bird has to learn to be with you for hours. Yeah. Some people stay up all night with their first bird. The first night, they just stay up with it. And at this, at this point, the birds are hooded, so they have. You've probably seen pictures of ho- hooded hawks. Mm-hmm. That's just so when a bird's eyes are open, it's instantly hunting, or it's in fright or flight mode. So um, if the bird can't see and its feet are bound, it just has to just accept the fact that it can work with this person, or it can refuse to eat, and it can refuse to not be tame, but work as a team. And so, so falconers, you don't know if the bird you get out of the wild is going to one be healthy enough to be working with you sometimes birds have internal parasites they could have a really bad mite problem they could have injuries from earlier hunts that went bad squirrels attack hawks like crazy a hawk oh really yeah. oh, a hawk jumping yeah. on a squirrel is like you and me jumping on a tiger really like they, they those squirrels turn around with their teeth and dig into they, they do not go quietly into night a rabbit once it gets pinned down it's done like if it can't get away it's gonna be killed but squirrels will flip over and there are there are hawks you'll find in the wild that you may trap and they're good squirrel hawks but their 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 talons look like battle scarred up from attacking these so so from the squirrels fighting like yeah yeah, yeah. around this area with the specific um birds and hunting but i mean and some falconers are like, well, I want a, I want a squirrel hawk. I want a hawk that's out there with these, t- with these scarred feet. And other people are like, I do not want to be pulling an angry squirrel off of my hawk on the ground. And they're like, forget it. I'll get a bird that's not as tough, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. But most of us want a bird who's going to be, you know, doing it all, getting squirrels. Uh, some, some people use. I've seen people get pheasants with red tails, young turkeys. You know, it's all about. You know, I have my last hawk. I had her name was Auburn. She would the for, earlier in the season she would flush a grouse and she would just watch it take off. Like what was that? Like the <laughs> the explosion of the drumming feathers and stuff. And then by the end of the season of a of a grouse took off, she was right behind it. There was not a chance that she was going to catch up to a full first flush grouse. Yeah, it's I mean red tails are built like owls. They have these big wide wings it's like an owl with a tiny head and they're just they're not built they're built for soaring and they're built for tree to trees but they're not built for that kind of like through the woods majestic maneuvers that a grouse can do and so but just seeing her try i was like what a gal (laughs) i don't care if our whole hunt is just watching you try to get a grouse and you never know she get lucky she get on that second flush where it doesn't have the energy to take off like that you know so it's been done, um, not by my particular birds, but I mean, for me, just just being out in the woods with them has been the greatest thing. And I and I I did it. I started back in 2012, 13 with my first bird, and I, I think just the process of getting to the point of training and then then releasing it back in the wild, like the whole cycle has been so wonderful. If if anyone listening is interested in falconry, I, I can't I can't tell you how easy it is to go online to the New York State Falconry Club or whatever your state is. Um, it should have a state club. Um, message them. Say you're just interested. There will be someone within an hour's drive of you that's into hawking and everyone's welcomed. Everyone I know in the community so far is very welcome to showing people 
um, what the sport is about, um, the responsibility and time it takes, obviously, but also just like if you want to go along this year for a hunt, if you want to see what it's like to be out there working with a bird, a lot of groups will set you up with people who are willing to, to, to show you that this world. And if you're already hunting, the first step in this state is to just contact the DEC and let them know you're interested in falconry and they'll send you a packet with the resources, um, people like me who are licensed falconers who can become your mentor, or they'll just give you the, they also give you, I didn't mention this earlier, but you get a, a thick book, which is like a driver's manual of all the stuff you have to study to become a falconer. And you have to go to a DEC office and take a written test that you must get an 80% or higher on to get your apprenticeship. So there's like a written exam, there's building equipment, there's buying supplies and food, there's having a game warden inspect your supplies and food and equipment, there is signing up for a mentor who's a stranger who you probably don't know who's willing to take you on. And then that's all before you get to go trap a wild animal and train it. So you can see how there's a lot of red tape that if you're willing to do, I mean, you can go from wanting to be a falconer now and training your first bird this winter, but it's going to take a lot of time not yeah. a lot of money but, but there's a process to it there but sure is yeah it's cool though that there's the community around it yeah too, that people are your experience has been that people have been helpful uh, you were talking earlier like you said there's like a group around this general area yeah of, of, there's a really rich falconry community here and in pockets around new york state yep but i think it's just become friends see friends get into it then they yep. get into it but yeah there's about 20 people within an hour of here I'm guessing it could be 18 within half an hour. I'm not sure. Yeah. But it's a, there's a nice group of people that have generally been kind. And all of them have helped me in some way get through this process. Um, and it, I shouldn't say get through. Enjoy it. Um, you learn a lot of lessons. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from other people's mistakes. It's a really good community. Yeah, It's been it's, a good thing. It's awesome. I'm so glad. Thanks for sharing that story about oh, it's, the birds. It's wonderful. Thanks. It's, it's cool. So you said you also do some bird hunting with some friends with dogs and, and some deer hunting as well? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to whitetails, I'm a, an amazing falconer. Um, <laughs> I have not had much luck. I have been I have been not super dedicated to it. Every year I go out, no matter what, the first opening weekend. But some years I'm out there eight days straight trying, and some days I just go opening day. And, um, with the farm in fall, you usually have like – pork in the freezer and you know yeah, you're just yeah. not as in need of i hunt for food so like um i haven't had luck i've gotten more venison and barter with friends than i have for myself but i do i do enjoy it very much um i have a little land here but i have friends with larger land and supplies so going there for deer hunting has been a great tradition but i have friends that work with um some great breeds like large monster landers um that are all around great um, flushing and pointing dogs and ret water retrieving, so ducks and geese. So I haven't done a lot of waterfowl hunting, but I really enjoy upland hunting. I really enjoy being out there in the field with like a dog and the pheasants and friends moving in a line across a field and just the excitement when when a pheasant is flushed. Oh my gosh, it's it's I've really fallen in love with that. It, it's yeah. a cool it's a cool community too yeah uh, i went out to pheasant fest in minnesota this winter oh did you uh thirty thousand people whoa it was huge so it's in minneapolis at the convention center and there was so much energy and it's such a great group of people and the love that they have for their dogs and th those dogs like there were dogs there and you could just tell it's like such a, a neat community 
and uh, Pheasants Forever hosted it, and they invited some other conservation groups. But that was a cool experience. I would, I would imagine. Yeah. And there's so much to learn. I feel like going to those kind of events when we have them again is going. It's just so important. Just go and listen to what people are saying because. You can't be anywhere 15 minutes and not learn three things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Such a such a great opportunity. I was fortunate to do it. It was just before COVID. So got lucky. Back yeah. in. Yeah, got yeah. lucky. And we also ended up uh, after I was with my friend Mark uh, from Modern Carnivore. And after the uh, after the show, we went up north and hunted rabbits, uh, snowshoe hares with oh, a friend wow. of ours. Yeah. And uh, she has uh, Deutsch Longhars um, dogs. They're mm-hmm. German dogs. These dogs were incredible, Jenna. Like they're they're young, they're like a year old, and they were just born for it. And yeah, so uh, just it was a cool experience. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think, um, as far as advice goes? You've been homesteading now for a while. Um, if, off, what kind of advice do you have for people that are interested in it? And like, if if you thought through your journey, and and somebody came to you and said, Jenna, I'm thinking about doing it. Um, what would you say to them? I would encourage them for sure, because I can't think of a better way to spend your time as a human being that already knows it needs shelter, food, and clothing and such to live. Any any control you can get back in those little aspects of your life, it it's just good for the whole body and soul. So it doesn't have to be moving to a farm and, and we're making six acres be your gardens and horse with logging and pack goats and stuff. It can be as simple as this year we're we're going to eat tomatoes we grow and in your backyard or whatever space you have or your neighbor's backyard or your roof or your windows or your fire escape, you can decide that this year we're planting five or six tomato plants and we're going to eat off of those plants and we're going to make pasta sauce and freeze the rest of them and we're going to have we're going to take back tomatoes this year. Like it can start with one project like that that you do on a fire escape or um like for me, I started out with chickens and bees and gardens, and that was like my trifecta of getting hooked. And those are chickens and bees and gardens can be in any backyard in America. They can be um, people. I know a lot of folks in cities that have utilized their rooftops and had a coop on a roof or had a had a had a garden where they brought in up the elevator, up the stairs. They carried bags of potting soil. And they made raised beds. And so, I mean, if you're willing to do the work, you can do this anywhere on any scale. So my advice would be to just start. Like, I don't care if you get a coffee can and put a bean in it. Like, just start growing something and um, work your way to things like um, skills and animals and stuff up the way. But uh, before you plant your first seed or get your first chicken, it'd be good to visit and see what homesteaders are doing. Get a, get a feel for it. Um, see if you can find someone that you can, like, talk to or just spend some time at their place and see what the life is like. Because I'm not saying you don't have to be rich or you don't have to have... Um, a lot of skills to get started, but you do need to understand the the presence that is needed if you're raising food and animals in one place. So some folks love the idea, but they also love the idea of a two-week vacation, or they love the idea of being able to go to a concert overnight in Montreal and just leave everything for a day or two. And I think the presence that homesteading on this scale requires, I've done everything from from dairy goats to meat rabbits to, you know, veg and honeys and, and I mean hives and uh it's there's there's been years where I didn't leave for five or six years for a night you know so um but I'm all, I was also a single person at the time and um 
That means real hard when you're the only person milking goats to leave. Mm-hmm. It also got me out of a lot of things I didn't want to do. So that's good <laughs> advice. So- Don't want to go to that wedding in California. Be like, I got into home setting. I have to milk this goat. I can't make it, Sally. Sorry. You know, like <laughs> there are perks to that. <laughs> there's some perks to not being able to have to be home every 12 hours. Um, but uh, if you're antisocial, if you're an introvert, but um, I would say just get started. And um, it can be as simple as going to your library, getting some books. Doing some local research through your local um, 4-H or FFA or your local extension service, and they'll know someone they can get you in touch with that you can talk to. But I mean, a lot of it is just getting started by being curious enough to ask and yep. get out there. Um, yeah, I, I, but I can't. I, I, there's not a lot you can do as a human being that makes more sense than learn to take back some of the skills that you depend on to survive. It just makes a lot of sense to me. Makes a lot of sense to yeah. me too. I like uh, your advice is so approachable. It's just starting where you're at, right? yeah, and just doesn't have to be full bore. And it's it's so similar to advice I give to people about getting started in the outdoors. It's mm-hmm. just like just get out there and try something. If there's a if there's a park in your neighborhood, get outside. If mm-hmm. there's a little pond, you don't have to jump right into the backcountry kind of stuff. You don't have right. to go full bore. You can just start with what what works for you and um, and meet some people. And take it one step at a time. Yeah. So I think that that's great advice. Do you have any mentors or like books, uh, writers that you really look up to um, that like have helped you along the way or just like, you know, I guess I'm asking is like, uh, what books are you into? And like, what what do you like to read? And like what authors or might not even be authors, but just people that have influenced your your path and journey? Sure. Um, Well, when it comes to homesteading and farming the outdoors um, in general, uh, before I ever got into to anything involving like farming, I was falling in love with people like the writings of like John Muir. I was reading, um, I was, I was in love with um, Gary Snyder, you know, and like, yeah, even Gary reading, Snyder's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like reading about him and his story. Like I got into him because of like the Dharma bums and reading Kerouac, mm-hmm. like in my early twenties. So like, I was falling in love with this reverence for nature and the outdoors. I was a hiker and backpacker before I was a farmer. So I think my curiosity of natural things was already kind of like bubbling up. But but then you start to learn about people like Wendell Berry. Um, you learn about the um, some of the original homesteaders here in America, the people who took the journeys out. Like I'm talking about like pioneers and people who had to create communities that did not exist for themselves here. Um, clearly, there were great communities that already exist in America, but the, the um, like, of course, like Aboriginal and like First Nations folks mm-hmm. and stuff. But uh, for people who came here knowing nothing about America and just having to figure out how to get through that first winter, like as horrific as some stories of like colonialization are, like also those people had to make it. And like, I know a lot of people now that can take apart a computer or an engine with their bare hands that would not make it through one winter yeah. without those, you know what I mean? <laughs> Smart people that, like, yeah. including me, you know, like, but those are very defined skill sets. Yeah. Surviving, like, but so right? I was, so to, to answer your question about books, I was falling in love with like, um, just the people, the homesteading and the agricultural writers. And then I honestly, my biggest personal, and this is not related to hunting or homesteading, or nature, I fell in love with fantasy reading. So, like, I am a cool. big Tolkien fan. I am a uh, there's a author right now, Patrick Rothfuss, who's writing um, a third in his series of books um, that are called uh, "The Name of the Wind" and "The Wise Man's Fears," the King Killer Chronicles. These are stories of just 
people getting through life being kind of like protagonists in their own story and we all are protagonists mm-hmm. in our own stories so um i've just always loved fantasy because i think it was those pulp fantasy books growing up where there'd be like a woman looking over her edge of a forest with a wolf by her side and a hawk on her fist that i was like oh yeah yeah and that's what i want to be when i grow up like i don't want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a graphic designer or a coupon designer like i want to i want to be that lady with the loincloth and the horse running across the field like with a spear in her and so you only saw women that strong in fantasy books like growing up my life was like like a like you saw like barbie dolls or you saw these like like for me growing up women empowerment happened in sci-fi and fantasy so i think doing this as a woman alone um through most i mean i'm not i'm no longer single but i was for 10 years doing this and that whole time like I had to look, sadly, I had to look at that time more to fantasy and science fiction for strong female leads. Not because there weren't plenty of strong women in our history as like pioneers, but that's just what sparked my interest and gave me personal encouragement to get out there and do this. I'm like, well, if you want to be that person on the cover of the book, you know, to start faking it right now. But yeah, uh, so there's a nerdiness to a lot of the stuff, the horses and the hawks and archery, which I also absolutely love to teach and do. But um, learning those practical skills came from wanting to be the people I read about in stories. I don't know how how nerdy that is, but it's pretty honest. Well, and, I'm a book person, too, so yeah. I think it's incredibly cool. I am so glad you shared that. Um, I have, you know, that's a perspective that is so cool to me because I've never I've never thought of the fantasy genre um, in those terms of of empowerment. Mm -hmm. But like when you say that, it's so obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's great. Like it's uh, for men too. I mean, seeing Mm -hmm. like, I mean, I can't, this is a a very worn path, but seeing something as classic as like a story of like the Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, it's not the men and elves that are the heroes. It's these farming dopey, like these, like these, like very, the short, the small, the agricultural, the Mm -hmm. domestic, like the, these little like, these little guys are what are able to step outside of their comfort zone and change the world. And I think you can take that metaphor with you on your first hunt, on your first time going out with people that are hunting with hawks, on your first time deciding, like, we're going to raise a pig ourselves this year and have that butchered for the winter. Like, these are all journeys you're taking and you don't know how they're going to go or what's going to happen. But either way, we'll have a story at the end and possibly bacon. So let's just keep going, you know? Yeah, I love yeah. it. Um, our seventeen-year-old cat is named Samwise. Oh, so. <laughs> the hero! Yeah, the hero of that story. As I'm convinced, we no call one... it, we call him Sam, but uh, yeah, Samwise. So he's been around a long time with us. What are your thoughts? Um, any thoughts on expanding community in the outdoors? If you, how do you perceive um, the outdoor community as far as um, hunting and like in terms of just being accessible and providing? opportunities to get people out i'm just curious as to do you think about that much sure yeah yeah i think i think the outdoor community more so than most communities it understands the importance of mentorship and the necessary the necessary uh, means like you you can't spend your day on youtube and learn how to hunt like i don't care like you you need to have someone who teaches you how to read sign who teaches you how to safely you know have a gun in a crowd of four people, you know, like, mm-hmm. like you, you can get a lot of theory and practice, but I feel that we need community more than a lot of, a lot of endeavors. And so I think it's incredibly important and necessary. I do think that unfortunately our community is suffering from the same thing. This whole country 
is suffering from, which is a, is a division, I think, by both class and politics. And there's a saying, and I don't know who the originator of the saying is, but you don't need to know someone's politics to put in your storm windows, mm-hmm. you know, to have help. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> um, there, I'm sure there's people in the falconry and in the hunting and in the outdoor community that we would not agree with each other politically. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from each other and respect each other. And I think the outdoors should be a place more of coming together and meeting us as primal human beings trying to get a simple thing done, yeah. food on the table. And I think if you're if you're if you're working hard and you're honest, then they and, and if you're honest about your experience level and you're just willing to shut up and listen, I think regardless of who you are, or where you come from people are thrilled to teach folks that genuinely want to learn something. Yeah. And so I think the outdoor community is needed more than ever to be reaching out to people because there's a lot of folks, I don't care where you are, like class or politics. I am not a wealthy person. I am not a conservative person. I love going upland hunting with fancy dogs and looking like I'm in an Orvis ad because it may not be my actual life, but it's fun to be with these gorgeous dogs on a field and going home with a pheasant. And, like to me, like upland hunting is a little more of a of a of a classy thing as opposed to like sitting in a deer stand for twelve hours at dawn on my property. But I mean, I need help from people who know how to gut a deer right, and they're not going to necessarily be people with you know pride flags outside their house, you mm-hmm. know. And so I, it's just we're all we're, we all need each other. So um, I think if you're new to the outdoors and you're a little nervous about a community that you may have assumptions about, there are all types of people in the outdoors. There are all types of people in hunting. And, and and just because you may be more comfortable with a certain subculture doesn't mean that you won't be welcome in others. And I think if you're a good person and willing to listen and learn, there is so much good to be to being around people with different beliefs and politics or, or thoughts just because it's only going to enrich your own life. Yeah. Um, so I would say I, I think there is a. There might be people listening that are interested in the outdoors who like the idea of sustainable food, who want to get into deer hunting for the first time this year. They see deer every day when they come home from work. They're like, why can't I eat that? Oh, I can. They're listening to podcasts. And in their brain, maybe the, the people at the gun club are all like 65 plus year olds have been hunting their whole life, are super, super conservative or super, super liberal depending where you live. And they're just like, well, I can't talk to these people. Like you absolutely can. And they will be thrilled <laughs> to have a new person to teach because they will have someone new to gossip about and make fun of and enjoy and watch you grow. And that's what we all love in any community. Yeah. I don't care if you're stamp collectors or playing chess, like showing someone the ropes is literally the funnest thing of the outdoors. So, and then your, your success becomes the group success. And so I guess I would say, get out there and don't be scared. Even, I mean, be mindful that we are in a pandemic and, and who you're being around and be yep. socially distanced. Do it safely. But like, Meet people because even if you think that your world's apart or even or more, if you think you're identical, like you're going to learn, you're going to learn a lot about this sport and this culture, but you're also going to learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. So and in the end, um, you know, we're all trying to be out there connecting to the to the outdoors and to ourselves and searching for ways to connect to our food. Right. And so all of that stuff is a unifying underlying kind of commonality. And we can leave the other stuff aside, I think. So I, I love that. Where can people find you in terms of online? Uh, okay, so, good. yeah. So uh, anything else you want to talk about, though, before we wrap up that I forgot to ask you? As far as I think to talk about, no, I mean, I'm talking to you as a falconer and a hunter and a homesteader. 
Uh, I would just like to make it clear that this is just my experience and opinions and stories. I may have said something that another falconer or that another homesteader would not agree with. And that's great. That's how we all learn. So I would like not to understand that I'm not an expert on any of this, but I'm here to talk to you and share my experience. I, I think the only thing that I would like to end with is that if there's something you want to do, like the, like in that little quote you read, like I, we have such a short amount of time and you got you can't put it off. You got to do it. And I don't care if it's a pack goat or that trip to Bali or um, learning how to hunt or deciding to finally learn how to fly fish, whatever it is you want to do. Um, if you can find a way to do it, get to your library, find a friend to borrow equipment from, have a friend take you on a hunt. Just make this the year you take a step towards doing it because time flies. And I think that now more than ever in modern history, it's important to get connected back to who we are on a little more of a primal level. Yeah. So it's great advice. Thanks. It's great advice. So people can find you on Instagram, right? You're, um, you're on Instagram and Twitter, I think. I'm on Instagram, Twitter. I have. I, well, my website is barnheart.com. Barn okay. like a barn and heart like your heart. We'll um, put that in the show notes, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. And that's, there's 12 years of, of, of writing plus going from living in Idaho and Vermont to this. So you can, if people want to. They can read my entire story on there. Um, but there's just, if you're getting into homesteading. Um, and then, uh, but if you're looking for more of what's going on every day, my Instagram is at uh, Cold Antler Jenna. And I'm on Twitter as Cold Antler Farm. Or you can just search either of those for Jenna Wilgenrich. And um, I'm, I'm on posting on those very regularly. Yep. Yeah. So cool stuff. So I really appreciate getting the opportunity to meet you. And then having this conversation. It's, it's so much fun. Uh, so thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.